Episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host Carrie Borkowski here with Dr. Brianne Ruse and Reverend Chris Longman. I'm so very excited to have both of you here. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Good morning. Um, so Chris Longman is originally from Michigan, where she owned a <laughs> yoga studio outside of Ann Arbor. I didn't know that, Chris. I see I learned something already. She moved to Situate, Massachusetts with her husband and three kids in 2012. She has always been involved in the church and Chris answered the call into ministry in 2019 and she now serves Harbor United Methodist Church as an appointed licensed local pastor. Um, and you're still doing yoga, right, Chris? Aren't you? In I am. Instead of um, working at a studio, um, now I offer a yoga class on Wednesdays here at the church where it's a donation only class and that's how we support the food pantry here in Situate. Awesome. Well, I know you are super busy. Um, I'm always so amazed and impressed with the, the, the crazy hours of our clergy. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to talk with us. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So Chris, this is my first time meeting you. It's so nice to meet you and to learn about your background and your bio. And as you know, because you've listened to the pod before, we always just start with a check-in. So we were just wondering, how are you? How are your family? How is your family? How are your kids? Um, you know, we do the same thing in Methodism. Whenever we start a meeting, we ask that question, how is it with your soul? <laughs> and I'm a, you know, I love icebreakers and, and meetings and things like that. But there's something about that question that always makes me think, wait a minute, how am I? So this, that's beauty in that question right there that we ask ourselves, how are we actually? Today, I am good. Um, the family is doing well. Um, our church just had a big win. Um, we're a small church, and for years, we've seen ourselves as the little poor, you know, Protestant church in town. And um, we had set ourselves the goal with a capital campaign, and our leadership team thought it was insane to set the goal that we did. And gave ourselves a year to meet that goal. And we actually met it three weeks early and went over that goal. And Ooh. it is, it was a big win. And, and just the faithfulness. I think the thing that um, makes me feel so good about that goal is instead of getting really tight in other areas of ministry, we got bigger. Like we doubled the, the mission events that we were doing. We doubled the amount of money that we were giving to different charities to support different groups. And I believe that's the key to why we were successful. Mm. Oh, that's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, that's great. Lots, lots to yeah. celebrate on this rainy day in Situate. So yes. congratulations <laughs> to you. Um, Chris, I know, um, cause we've, we've talked offline um, many, many times. I know you've listened at least to a few episodes of the podcast. So you're familiar with the theme around belonging. And so, as I said to you before we, we put on the recording, one thing that Brian and I are really trying to do this with this season is have conversations with people in different professions, with different perspectives and different contexts. And so I'm really interested because I don't know that we've explicitly talked about this topic, actually. 
I'm, I'm interested to know how your life experiences and your professional experiences, both as a, as a minister and yoga instructor, perhaps, um, influence or contribute to your understanding of this idea of belonging. Um, I think that, um, they all intersect. I think for, um, for years, I don't know if code switching is the right term, but, you know, I had, you know, I had this, this group of friends or colleagues, and then I had another group of friends and colleagues, and I had to be different things to Mm. both of those groups. And with the yoga world, with the, um, ministry and as a mother I have been working towards integrating my full self and being able to show up as my full self Mm -hmm. and how that feeds into belonging is if I am showing up as my full self then I'm giving permission to others to also show up as their full self Mm -hmm. um I think that permission is the most paramount part of having people feel welcome and feeling like they belong. I love that. You said some of my favorite words like integration, (laughs) permission to show up as yourself, just to sort of build on that a little bit. When you say permission to show up as yourself and, and invite others to show up as themselves is should I understand that as your definition of belonging or, or is there other pieces that you'd like to add to clarify what, like your conception of that word belonging? I mean, definitely it's a great um, definition of it. I think that for somebody to belong, they have to know that no matter what aspect of their personality or who they are in prison, like how they, they present in the world needs to be affirmed and welcomed. Mm. Um, How can you feel like you belong to a group if there is a large part of your life that you don't feel comfortable expressing? Um, I I remember one of, I was away from organized religion for most of my adult life. Um, I feel like organized religion has done a lot of harm and we've got a lot of making up to do, which is a large part of my call into ministry. But I, I dipped my toe in by start going to a women's Bible study. And I was raised that like at Bible study, you're going to wear your nice clothes and you're going to sit up and you're going to, you know, hold it all in really, really tight and try to be perfect. <laughs> and it was a competition of who can be most perfect. Mm-hmm. And at this particular Bible study, the leader got up and like, she let a swear slip. Like, she's like, you know, in all this crap, but she used a different word. <laughs> and nobody clutched their pearls and was like, <gasps> and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I can be in this space and I can still be sarcastic and use my humor and I can, you know, say that I, I'm mad at my kids. My kids are a bunch of jerks and no one's going to look at me like I have two heads. Like I'm allowed to say that. Mm. And it was the first time that I felt like I really belonged to a faith community Mm. and I just needed more of that. Yeah. She sounds like an amazing leader. The woman who (laughs) who you met. That's fantastic. 
Gosh, I want to do a podcast on your journey. I'll just say that. <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> but that right? That's not the purpose of today. So I'll take a little bit more of the script. Um, I love how you're talking about your connection to other people in different places, right? In yoga, at home, as a mom, now as a minister, and as somebody with a lot of life experience before entering ministry. I think that's really pretty incredible. What I was hearing and all that is just the multitude of relationships that you've had across all of those different parts of your life. And, and some seem like they intersect. How critical do you think belonging is to those relationships? Very critical. Um, in, in teaching yoga, one thing I learned pretty early in that profession is that there needs to be a sense of community for there to be any great success. So I might not be the world's greatest yoga instructor, but if I foster a sense of community within my classes that the, the students are going to support and care for each other. So instead of it being teacher focused, it's going to be community focused. And then the benefit for all, even as the instructor, I get great benefit from that. I take that lesson into my ministry as well. You know, I don't want to have a congregation of people who think I'm great. I want a congregation who loves their church family, thinks God's great, and aren't showing up every Sunday just to hear me rattle on, but to be with their church family in that space. So as far as creating an environment where people belong, aside from, like I said, of um, giving that permission, also fostering and helping the connections between the people in the congregation, in the classroom, in the family. I have the same issue with, with my family, making sure that my children have strong connections with each other, not just with me. So Carrie, I don't know where your mind's going, but I'm just thinking about the so many conversations that we've had about community building as a prerequisite to content. And I think that could be across contexts. So whether it's yoga, whether it's our other colleague who does um, exercise classes at the Y, she had the same sort of approach, whether it's me in a more of a traditional academic classroom, I just think it has to come first. I think it precedes learning and it's the most important part of what we do. I mean, I think that was a huge lesson through COVID that we've discovered through this podcast also. So it's so nice to hear about it in different contexts and from different people. I'm just gonna skip ahead a little bit here because I feel like what you're saying is lending itself to the next questions. How do you do it? So how do you cultivate those connections? We talk so much about like big ideas and also we wanna get to the tangible sort of actionable items. So how did you do it in a yoga class or how do you do it in ministry? That's a good question. It, Nobody's ever asked me that, but like if I were to write like a how-to book, right? This is <laughs> yeah, one of yeah. the things that I would definitely put in there. Um, in a yoga class, whenever there's a new student, I always say, hey, everybody, you know, this is Suze. This is her first time practicing with us. Do you guys remember the first time you were here? And everybody was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, isn't it like the scariest, hardest thing to walk into a class the first time when everybody knows each other? But now you guys know Suze and you guys introduced yourself to her. And now 
now it's a lot safer for her to be here. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, this is a welcoming space. And just like that disclaimer of somebody walking in, I like to do the same thing in ministry. When somebody comes to visit us, I like to first acknowledge the fact of how hard it is to walk in the door the first time. It's one of the bravest things somebody can do is to walk into a new situation. Um, cold, you know, like sometimes if you have a friend that brings you, there's, there's still some nervousness, but to walk into a situation cold is really, really brave. And to acknowledge that and then to remind the others that are already in the space, remember when you did this, remember how you felt, how would you like to be welcomed? Yeah. I love, I love that, so that you, I love that you're sharing that strategy because it reminds me, um, you know, researchy wise, like we hear a lot in the research, the evidence suggests that for students, for example, coming into a new program, right? Some of the best ways, most effective ways to cultivate that belonging is for them to hear from alumni who have been in it and through it. Right. So it's so fun to hear in a completely different context, two different contexts, that the same sort of philosophy or approach is 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 helpful in cultivating that belonging. So I love I love seeing those those parallels. Um, Chris, I'm curious, you know, you were you were talking about if I was writing a how to book. Well, I want to I want to continue with that metaphor. Um, I feel like another chapter in that how to book might be to share some of the, trying to think what the right word is, almost like a waypoint or a marker or a, a signal of some sort that says, as a, as a leader of a church, as a yoga instructor, or just, just as a friend, I'm, I'm seeing or sensing or feeling that belonging. And I'm wondering if you could identify in your, from your perspective, how, how do you know when it's there with other people? Personally, I feel I know when it's there when I don't feel that I'm withholding any part of myself. Mm. Um, when somebody asks me how I am, if I'm in a space where I feel like I belong, I feel like that is an opportunity for me to answer honestly. Mm. Um, if I'm in a space where I don't know where I stand, not necessarily an unsafe space, but a space where I don't know the temperature or the weather of how it's going to be received. Mm -hmm. Then you stick with the niceties. <laughs> Everything's lovely. Thank you. And you clutch your pearls. <laughs> you clutch yeah, your clutch my pearls. <laughs> uh, after the birth of my um, first child, I went to, uh, it was like a mommy and me group, but it really was more of a mommy support group mm -hmm. of those first few months of being a new parent. And um, the amazing woman who ran the program would always like start with an icebreaker. Um, one of her icebreakers, and I use this when I taught mommy baby yoga as well, is like, what is the best advice that you were ever given? What was the worst advice? And the worst advice was always hilarious. You know, it was like always the grandma, like give them a shot of bourbon and they'll sleep. Like hilarious <laughs> anecdote. <laughs> but the best advice she said that she ever got and, and was the best advice that I ever got is why? And which like rocks you back for a minute. Wait a minute, lie. She's like, when you're in the grocery store 
and somebody says, oh, look at your baby. Is your baby sleeping through the night? You say, yeah. <laughs> and if, you know, somebody's like, oh, are you breastfeeding? Did you breastfeed? You did? Yes, I'm breastfeeding. Oh, you bottle fed? Yes, I'm bottle feeding. Because you don't owe anyone the interest, like the choices that you're making around your family, you don't necessarily owe them that. So if I have to use that advice of that boundary, that is not a place where I feel like I necessarily belong. It doesn't mean that I won't get there. It's just I've got those boundaries up. Yeah, it's funny. It's exactly the word that was coming to mind for me, Chris, was besides I love the sense of humor is this notion of boundaries, right? Because what um, I don't know if you can hear the rain, the thunder and lightning behind me, but um, what it made me think about, and I know you're also a fan, Chris, is Brene Brown's work around boundaries and how she Mm -hmm. reminds us that boundaries are part of self-care. And I think it's really interesting in Brianna, I'm going to steal. I know we had talked about these questions. I'm going to jump right into one of your questions, which I think gets us there, which is, I feel like you're getting into this idea of belonging to self. And I'm wondering when you hear that phrase belonging to self, what comes up for you? What's your, what's your sense of that sort of notion? I I love that question actually. Um, And it does lead in pretty well because um, boundaries for a long time have been defined as like withholding in some sense, but it is actually a protection um, and a way of self-care. Now, self-care historically for me personally has been a hot button word because um, I do have a child that um, struggles with mental illness and in any type of support group, anytime we're speaking to counselors, other parents, the first thing they always ask a caretaker, so this could affect, you know, somebody who's a caretaker in any role is, what are you doing for self-care? Mm-hmm. And my answer would be like, I got up today. That's my self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a good cry in the back of the closet. That's my self-care. <laughs> so... Belonging to self, I, I think, really starts with a confidence in being able to fully embody who you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that, I guess, you know, is where the ego c- comes in. And the science of yoga is about trying to eradicate our ego. Mm-hmm. The ego is the part that keeps you separate. The ego is what tells you that you are an island. And you know, you're in this vacuum and your experiences are only your experiences. Um, Getting rid of the ego, you're able to see yourself in other people's experiences and in other people's um, expressions of themselves and having confidence in yourself and who you are and how you're created and who created you. You're able to not turn into dust over the idea of an imperfection. And that comes from having a lack of ego. You know, the ego is the part where, gosh, if somebody points out how I misspelled half the words in the bulletin this week, I'm going to turn to death. Like, I, I will never be able to recover. I'll be so embarrassed and shame and all of that stuff that, that separates us. If you're like, hey, 
I'm going to spell things wrong. If you get an email from me and there's not a misspelling, it's not from me. I've been hacked. <laughs> so just being able to own it, like, you know, I, I can't spell to save my life, but I can reach things on the top shelf. So I've got a gift there. You, and you can, being realistic you. about it is how you can belong to yourself, like all of it, the warts, everything, yeah. embracing it all. When you, I'm well, curious, think, oh, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Brand. Nope, go ahead. Jump no, in. go ahead. You're curious about what? No, I was just wondering when you said, because um, we've, I don't know that we've ever had someone on Brand talking about ego. So I'm so interested mm -hmm. in, in your picking, yeah. picking this up. Chris. And so I just wanted to follow up when you say lack of ego, would it be accurate to say that that is another way to talk about, I, I don't know if it's Buddhist, but it's definitely in mindfulness when they talk about non-attachment. Is that similar? 100%. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Okay. A hundred percent. Okay. Cause the, the ego is like another form of this attachment. Like we have an attachment to self, like how we construct what we want the world to see. And when we have a lack of ego, we are letting go of this um, version of ourselves that we're trying to present to other people mm -hmm. and being completely comfortable with the trueness of who we actually are. Mm -hmm. um, I think in spaces where I've been, where I have not felt like I belonged or that I didn't feel necessarily were welcoming to all people, I found that it is usually, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but usually it's people who have egos that are there instead of boundaries for self-protection. Mm. Um, and if we were to really start chipping away at that, we would find somebody who is very uncomfortable in their own skin. Mm. I love that ego. So a bunch of people show up with egos instead of boundaries. It's a barrier mm. to belonging. Mm. I, I love, and I'll stop after this, Brianna, I promise. I just love, I, so this is why I wanted to, I wanted, we wanted to speak to people with different perspectives because I feel like there's so many different like forms of language to talk about belonging. And this is a perfect example. Like, I don't think we've ever heard it articulated this way that we show up with our ego and that can be a barrier to belonging. To me, that just, that brought me a new clarity to this work that I just, I'm grateful for Chris. So thanks for that, um, that insight for sure. So Brianne, I didn't yeah, mean so, to interrupt you. No, no, I was going to, I was a couple of things. I was going to say, if we had to give a word to lack of ego, what's the word, but I, I can't come up with it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to think about vocabulary. Right. So the lack of something must be something else, like must be mm -hmm. something else. I'm just not sure what the term is. This is so fascinating. I love this perspective and the ego and the boundaries. I just wanted to say that you must be so refreshing to people to be with because of your, you know, kind of quip about the spelling. You're just, there's just an air of relaxation that you bring. I think even with a line like that, because people are holding a minister to a standard of some sort, right? So if you're like, hey, I've got this skill set, not so much with the spelling, that just to me humanizes you right away. Um, and it sort of, to me goes in your how-to book, you know, to just be honest oh, yeah. and open <laughs> and a little self-deprecating about things that you can be funny with. And obviously you have a sense of humor. So that's kind of warm and inviting to begin with. And so we wanted to circle back a little bit to the strategy. So I hear that I hear sort of openly owning imperfections, if you will, or attributes that others or you might feel uncomfortable with. 
Um, I really liked how you talked about sort of connecting explicitly with new people and saying, you know, remember back when you were new and it's, it's really hard. Um, best and worst advice. What else falls into that how-to book in terms of ways to cultivate belonging in, in the relationships that you're in? Um, in the relationships that I'm in, um, there's definitely the, um, my daughter and I refer to this as showing your belly. So, you know, if you were to have a dog and a mm -hmm. dog is not a threat to you, they show your belly. Absolutely. And I like to show my belly right when somebody walks in. Um, <laughs> my administrative assistant here at the church once referred to me as a big Labrador puppy. Um, <laughs> and I took it as a compliment because Labrador puppies are really cute and they're they friendly. Um, but I like to show my belly, mm. but I also have a boundary in that. I'm going to show you my belly and I'm going to trust that you're going to see me trusting you and you're going to show me your belly as well. If you decide that you're going to bite my belly instead, that's information that's important to me. I'm not going to change who I am, but I'm not necessarily going to show you my belly the same way. Mm. Um, I think as we get older, your tolerance for surface relationships um, gets really low, while your tolerance for people's um, What's the word? You know, not their imperfections. I liked the word that you used, Brianne. Like your tolerance for people's imperfections goes up. Mm -hmm. So when somebody is able to fully own imperfections, um, you know, learning how to apologize, that's, that should be taught in school, right? Like a, a, a real apology should be able to be taught in school and when to apologize. Um, I can be friends with anyone and I can feel a sense of belonging with anyone who is being authentic in themselves. If somebody is trying to just show me an image of who they are trying to be, number one, you can see through it. Most people can. And it tells me, don't show this person your belly. They aren't spiritually or emotionally mature enough to have that type of relationship and being able to distinguish you're, you're not going to have that connection and belonging with everybody because not everybody is able to show up in that way. Yeah. I see it. I see but a be title. ready when they are. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I see a title to one of your chapters in your book. It's um, I just wrote it down belly and bellies and boundaries. Because <laughs> what I was thinking about, Chris, when you were describing that, and I love that metaphor, because we also we have we have a labradoodle who definitely does that. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. One thing I was wondering about, if we're thinking about strategies, how do you approach this sort of strategy? I mean, I will I identify as a white woman who is in a who a gay white woman in a same-sex marriage of a, you know, certain economic status. And so I know that when I'm able to show up as a white person that comes with certain privileges that maybe permit me to show my belly more quickly. And then when I go in spaces yeah. where my, you know, identity as a gay woman is known, sometimes my willingness and ability to show my belly might be slower. 
And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, how do we have that kind of conversation with our colleagues, friends, neighbors, community members who are, you know, marginalized in a variety of sorts of ways? I, I know that you've given this thought, so I would love to hear your perspective on this. That, that's actually um, a great, great, que good question. You guys have been doing this for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think a lot in the last couple of years, but even before this, the work that we do as far as inclusion goes, um, racial, human sexuality, it's really important um, to say what you don't know. Mm. Um, if I were to talk to Carrie in, in a way that made Carrie feel like I'm telling her that I know exactly what her experience is as a gay woman, just because I happen to be a white woman as well, but I'm heterosexual, but hey, I've known lots of gay people. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that, that is disqualifying her experience. But if I show up with a sense of curiosity and longing to understand and to also be a protection in spaces where she doesn't necessarily feel she can show up authentically, like Sometimes if you just have at least one other person in the room who is allowing you to be yourself, mm -hmm. it can give you the confidence to do that. Um, to go, speak to this, part of um, my call into ministry, because I fought it for a very long time, <laughs> um, I was fighting the call desperately. Um, in 2009, the United Methodist Church had their general conference in which they were discussing our viewpoint on human sexuality. Um, our current book of discipline does not see homosexuality um, as something that is in alignment with uh, Christianity. At this general conference, um, many felt like, obviously, we're going to remove this part of our discipline. This is, it was something that was added in the early 70s when we merged with another church. It's not Wesleyan. John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. There's no reason why it should be in there. Um, before the board, there were three plans of action. One was to remove it completely. The second was the one church plan where each, lo each local church would decide for themselves. And the third was called the traditional plan where they would no longer ordain or marry um, any same sex um, couple. We thought that it was gonna go with the one church plan that each church would be able to decide for themselves. And then unfortunately, this is a global church and it went with the traditional plan causing um, at the time we were calling it a split, but now I'm calling it a splinter because it is actually a smaller faction of the denomination that was going for the, um, especially in the US, as far as that traditional plan. I was going to leave the denomination. I hadn't written my call letter to the DS at that point. I had just gone to the ministry summit where you kind of get, this, this is the track in which you take to go into ministry. Um, I was going to leave the denomination and the DS said, you know, you really need to pray on that. And in that prayer, what was revealed to me is 
as a heterosexual white woman of a certain economical, you know, state, I am allowed a voice where many aren't. So if I were to leave the denomination, that's just another white girl leaving the denomination. Who is going to speak for those who are being silenced? So a long story to get to the point of, it is part of our privilege that we're able to speak in certain places. Um, you know, also as women, we don't have a lot of the freedoms that our brothers have and they need to use their privilege to stand up and speak for us. Um, so as far as creating a sense of belonging, I think being acknowledging the privilege that you have, we don't hear a lot about heterosexual privilege or sexuality privilege, but it is a privilege to not have to explain your sexuality to anybody. It's a privilege not to have to explain your sexual identity to anyone. So for those of us who have that privilege, we need to create the spaces for those who don't. Yeah, that I, that was a, a great story. And I'm glad I'm glad you shared it because I think it's interesting. I think I've evolved my view on situations that you're describing in the sense that recognizing that our system is broken. Right. We know that it's a um, racist system and and marginalizes different groups of people in a multitude of ways, unfortunately, and it's broken. And I think a younger me would have often turned her back on whatever institution it was that was doing what I perceived as doing the wrong and what I've learned. And I think it's hard. I think it's a hard road to walk because it's hard to find balances. You have to, you have to work within the system you have to uplift those voices who need lifting and space while also doing the work of changing the system. If we, I have in my own experience, I've learned that if I abandon that part of the system, I've actually missed an opportunity to cultivate belonging for those who need a voice. So I, I just really appreciate in such a beautiful way, Chris, you've, you've illustrated a great example of that. And I think it's hard, right? What, especially for our loud activists with whom I love mm -hmm. sometimes to, to, to face that reality. And I, I think the older I get, the more I realize that. And uh, one other thing I wanted to highlight that I love that you said um, when you were talking about sometimes it's, it's just important to have one other person in the space as a protection or as an ally. And to me, that illustrates why diversity is so important, not just as a numbers game, but like the composition of a room, we benefit from diversity because it's diversity of experience, diversity of thought, diversity of perspective. And so it's not just about having a diverse group that represents some population, it's diversity because diversity helps us to understand each other's experiences. So I just loved how you, again, illustrated that, that point. So, so thanks for that. Um, Brian, did you have anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? Well, I just had a couple of things. I mean, first, I really appreciated what you started this kind of that last piece with about not claiming to know, you know, mm -hmm. for example, what it's like for Carrie, right? Or, or others. I feel like I'm living in a world now where there's so much of this messaging being shoved down our throats, sort of the DEI. And fundamentally, I agree with it a thousand percent. 
but the way that it's being pushed, there's so much of that, what seems like white saviorism sort of behavior going on. Yeah. Um, yes, and it's yes, really yes. hard and it's having the opposite effect, actually. It's, it's making people mm-hmm. back off and mm-hmm. being like, whoa. Um, and so it just reminds me of what Brene Brown said, which was, um, I think it came out in her Atlas of the Heart book and kind of related discussions of, you're really not walking in other's shoes. You're just really asking what it's like to walk in their shoes and believing the stories that they tell you. A hundred percent. And that, I just loved that. And it really resonated with me a lot. And it kind of came to mind as you were talking about just kindly asking and being open and wanting to know and not wanting to hear mm-hmm. so that you can then tell. I mean, I feel like that's a yes thing that I'm seeing a lot now and it, it's really hard to, mm-hmm. to accept. So thank you for articulating that so nicely. Yeah. Thank you. I think the validation of somebody's experience is a key to having them feel like they belong to a community. Um, And I love that you said like the whole white saviorism and how there is kind of like a pushback on the DEI and the movement. Um, You know, my children are young adults. They do not understand why I've gone into ministry. Um, And like I, I had said earlier, you know, I spent most of my adult life not in an organized religion because like Carrie was talking in my younger days, if I didn't like a system, I left it. And I kept on waiting for the grownups to show up to change the system when I realized, Oh crap, I'm a grown up. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> oh, I kept waiting. <laughs> oh man. So, you know, that's a fine line of, of not, you know, gosh, the the generation coming up is just, they're so amazing. They really are. What, what, if they're lacking anything, what they're lacking is the patience for everyone else to catch up. You know, we, we talk about representation as far as like color and sexuality, but there's also a representation of age Mm -hmm. and how beneficial having multi-generational relationships can be absolutely yeah i i agree that the younger generation is a bit impatient and uh, there's a part of me that loves that they're impatient because it pushes other people to to move so i i think there's a there's a huge value and contribution in that impatience that they have so so i'm trying to to celebrate it and not get annoyed (laughs) by it so um So as we wrap up, Chris, we always like to give our guests, um, you know, an additional or last opportunity to share. So if there's anything else that you want to share that we didn't cover or you didn't finish talking about, um, now is the time. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I feel like I've been rattling on quite a bit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as rattling on. I think it's been really beneficial, nice combination of insights and stories, which, which Brian and I always love. So, so I will conclude then by thanking both of you for being here, Chris, thank you so much for taking out time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and learn from you and just hear your perspectives on everything. So um, yeah, thank you, Brianne and Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, everybody. This has been another episode of Tell Me This. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next time, take care.
心。